Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. listeners. I'm glad to have you here for a second look at the book, Cultivating Rural Education, a People-Focused Approach for States. Today, my co-host and I will be talking to one of the book's authors and really getting into some of the content. And speaking of co-hosts, I'd like to introduce my wonderful co-host, Julie Duffield of the Region 15 Comprehensive Center. Julie, Thanks, Melissa. I'm really excited to be here and representing the rural community of practice that Region 15 sponsors. Region 15, as we know, covers the states of Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and California. So, so excited to be here. Well, let's just get right into introducing our wonderful author who's going to be spending some time with us this morning. Erin McHenry Sorber was the chapter author that we're going to be taking a look at today. Uh, Aaron, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a little bit of background information about you and where you come from and how you fit into this rural picture? Sure, thanks for having me. I'm an assistant professor of higher education at West Virginia University. I'm also a co-editor of The Rural Educator, which is the journal of the National Rural Education Association. My research really focuses on rural schools, communities, and leadership, and the ways in which they attend to issues like inequities of place, spaces of marginalization within rural places. Before I became a faculty member, I was a teacher and grant writer for a very small rural district in Pennsylvania, and many of our programs relied on community partners. So I was excited when I got the opportunity to write this chapter. Well, that's wonderful. Julie, let's jump into the questions. Do you want to get us started? Yes, I thought, Erin, I love the way that you are focused on building school rural communities and um, illustrating how rural communities can play a pivotal role in supporting students by addressing their full needs. Can you share a little bit more about why this chapter spoke to you? So rural scholars and rural practitioners often talk about rural schools as being the heart of the rural community. Right, so more than just academic institutions, they serve as social hubs, they serve as the hubs for a host of services that rural youth and their families need. But not all rural communities and not all rural schools are the same, right? And so neither are the opportunities that they might have for community partnerships. And so in this chapter, I wanted to talk about the myriad ways that rural schools and school leaders Um, can partner with different community organizations and regional and state entities to think about how to best benefit the children and meet their specific needs in their specific communities and school districts, whether that's academics or food security or shelter or or even, you know, how to um, create a safe and inviting playground. So, Erin, that speaks to socioeconomic patterns, and those are very important in understanding rural communities. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right, so rural communities 
are often characterized as everything that's not urban. <laughs> and that, that, that creates some real challenges, right? Because um, those of us who work and live and study in rural places know that rural communities are far from monolithic. So here are some examples, right? We know generally that rural communities are more racially homogenous than non-rural places. And we know generally that whites make up about 80% of the rural population, but that's not all rural places. Mississippi, for example, has the fourth largest rural population in the country and the highest percentage of African-Americans. Mm. We know that other rural communities have large and growing Latinx populations. And we can think about economics similarly. We know that there are general trends, right? For example, we know that rural communities often are reliant on a single industry. We know that healthcare and education are often the major industries that employ rural people. But we also know that you know, some rural communities are home to growing meatpacking industries, while other rural communities are home to mineral extraction like coal or fracking. Still others are agrarian or have become tourist destinations. So we see real diversity among both social and economic characteristics when we think about rural places and rural peoples. Do you note any patterns when you were doing your research that tend to rise to the surface? In part, it's really dependent on the type of rural community. So we know, for example, um, from research that I've been a part of and others have been a part of that rural communities that are, for example, historically committed to industries like mineral extraction go through real boom and bust cycles mm-hmm. so that there are periods of time where their economic situation is booming, large percentages of their population are gainfully employed, And then when those mineral extractive industries hit a bus cycle, we see huge pockets of unemployment, um, food and housing insecurity. And we also see a lot of population loss in those communities as people leave that rural place for elsewhere. Boone County, West Virginia is a great example of this, right? It was once a thriving coal community. And as the coal industry has died over the past several decades, we see real increases in issues like poverty and and population loss. And all of that has really big effects on the rural schools. And just building on that, for the listeners, about the rurality of communities, and can you expand a little bit how this relates to rural schools and rural communities forming partnerships, either formal or informal? Right, and I'm really glad you said formal or informal because I think that, that both of those descriptors are really important when we're thinking about how rural schools as institutions partner with other organizations or institutions. One of the things that we think about when we think about rural partnerships is the ability to um, utilize personal relationships to form and sustain partnerships. So, for example, a school leader and a nonprofit leader might attend the same church or their children might be playing on the same sports teams. So they can uh, use those personal relationships they already have established to build more formal partnerships that are mutually beneficial to the community and the school. And when we think about partnerships in that way, we start to think about how things like school closures and consolidation can affect schools 
uh, in ways far beyond academics, right? Or economies of scale that we like to talk about. And some of the recent work I've done with some colleagues around the teacher shortage in West Virginia, we found, for example, that when schools are consolidated, that creates a new sort of community. Uh, And the school leader is then tasked with creating a whole new set of networks um, that might have already been established uh, in localized or community schools. In the work I did for this project, uh, issues like school closure had different sorts of effects on the actual ability for partnerships to implement initiatives that they had on paper. So one example is that a rural district and a regional community action group were working together to integrate Head Start and pre-K classrooms. And what they found was that when they were successfully integrated, kindergarten readiness scores were really high. But in schools that had been affected by rounds of consolidation, uh, which led to overcrowding in certain buildings, there wasn't the physical space to allow for those partnerships to happen. And so students in one area of the district were separated by Head Start and Pre-K. And those kindergarten readiness scores are significantly lower than in schools that had the capacity to house integrated classrooms. So uh, consolidation can have consequences for partnerships that are really far reaching. Building on that a little bit, Erin, can you talk a little bit about the multi-layered approach or nature of rural school partnerships? So rural schools partner with community institutions in multiple and interconnected ways. So for example, a rural school might work with parents to build a community garden. It might work with the Department of Natural Resources to test water quality uh, in a stream behind the school that runs through that community garden and use that network to teach children about local industry and environmental protections. That same school can partner with a local library to provide summer programming around any of those topics or um, work with the local government to improve the playground uh, that's next to that community garden. It might work with the health department with local 4-H chapters to provide programming and enrichment activities, coordinate with businesses around STEM education and robotics equipment. And, And then at the same time, it can partner with broader entities around community needs outside academics, right? That that we know are so important for student success and for students to be able to focus on those academic endeavors. So it might partner with nonprofits and local offices of state agencies to respond to needs like emergency housing or food assistance or GED coursework for parents, parents' education. And so we can see how very quickly um, those partnerships can involve multiple layers and really focus on the holistic needs of the child. When you've done your research, what are some of the challenges in creating those partnerships that you've seen and how have those entities and the schools that they're working with overcome those challenges? I think one of the biggest challenges is time. So anyone who's been a school leader or knows a school leader recognizes that the day-to-day challenges of leading a school or a school system, um, and that was pre-COVID, right? Sure, sure. Um, (laughs) 
are endless and take considerable amounts of time. And one of the things that I found in my research that was so important for school leaders was having time built into their structure to be able to engage with partners. In addition to time, something that came up as a really important support for engaging in partnership work was some autonomy, some freedom to engage with organizations outside the school or the school system and some autonomy in working with other entities around the really specific needs that their school had. Yeah, Erin, I was interesting how you talked about the role like Melissa and many play as school leaders in being boundary expanders in that role, as well as how substantial that work is in fostering those partnerships how difficult it is when you're a small, you know, you're a small school system and you don't have a central office to help support that and how the reliance on the relationship with the school board. So would you like to just both of you, Melissa, you wear many hats in playing that role. <laughs> I do. And Aaron, from your work, just some thoughts about that. Boundary expanding, wearing many roles. and Yeah, when you say that, the first image that came to my mind is, is some research that I did with a colleague in a multi-district union in Vermont where the superintendent was also putting out the flag at the start of the day. Uh, you know, sometimes they're involved in bus transportation, right? So the, so the hats are many. And I think focus can easily be divided when we're talking about boundary spanners or bridges between school systems and the community, it's really helpful to think about multiple positions that can assume that boundary spanning work, right? Because there's no way that a superintendent can or should be expected to, to do all this work on their own. And the same goes for principals. I think one, one really powerful position that can serve as a boundary spanner is that of school board members, because they are both committed to the school system through that elected position, but they're also outward facing um, elected officials. So they naturally have connections in the community and often regionally, and they can use the power of their position, I think, to build some really important connections inside and outside the school system. In one of the districts that I looked at for this chapter, the school board president used to be one of the secondary principals in the school system mm -hmm. and had been a coach. So he had a ton of connections in the community that he was able to utilize, I think, for the benefit of the school system. And I'll just add, Julie, that as a leader of a system in a rural community, you want to build capacity wherever you can. And tasking people to take on some of those roles, reaching out to the community, bringing them into what you're doing as a school system is making sure that you're building capacity in the people that you lead. And then building on that within the state system, what are some ways have you seen state leaders um, support partnerships? For example, you know, one way is supporting principals um, with policies around accountability and having more autonomy. You mentioned some research on that. Are there other state agency examples of supporting the complexity of rural leaders in their systems? There's a really fantastic example in Maryland, which is the Judith P. Hoyer Early Care and Education Enhancement Program, which locals just call the Judy Center. And the Judy Center is a state agency, and it has 
uh, arms across school districts in Garrett County, Maryland, which is in the very tiny westernmost corner of Maryland that some people might not recognize. The Judy Center has proven to be an essential partner, not just specifically related to early childhood care, but in serving as a hub for multiple countywide or regional organizations to come together around the needs of young children in the community. So for example, uh, the director of the Judy Center at the local level is actually hired by the school district um, and, and in partnership with the community action organization. Um, so both organizations are intimately involved in the workings of the Judy Center. And they partner with Cooperative Extension to provide education to families around healthy foods and nutrition. They partner with the Lions Club to provide eye exams to young children who aren't yet in school. Uh, they partner with a local entity called the WGW Community Youth Cup, which is a local nonprofit that was founded by three families who had all lost children. And they created this foundation, which um, now raises well over $100,000 a year in the community to serve children in myriad ways. And one of them is through partnership with the Duty Center to fund what they call Learning Beyond the Classroom. So it's a refitted school bus um, that is full of sensory play and um, cases of books, picture books for young children, and tons of activities organized around um, themes. And this bus travels around the county, which is several hundred miles, uh, and meets children and their families in local parks and in fire halls to provide monthly programming, not just for young children, but for their parents as well. And then it further partners with other entities like uh, homeless shelters and food pantries um, so that it's not just providing education, but it's also providing necessary services. And all of that comes about through a really powerful partnership with the state. So Julie and I are both members of a rural community of practice that's hosted by the Region 15 Comprehensive Center. And recently in one of our meetings, a member asked how school districts are funding both rural and community partnerships as a way to expand what's happening on their school sites. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen that done skillfully and successfully? In the county I was just talking about, as an example, the school district has leveraged local businesses, manufacturing companies, to help support their STEM robotics programming. And so you will find in all the schools now opportunities for students elementary through high school to learn about robotics to learn how to code robots. They engage in uh, Lego robotics competitions regionally and at the state and even nationally. And that's a really nice sustainable partnership because the other alternative I was going to say in response to your question was through a lot of grant writing. Um, <laughs> but as we all know, grant funds are time limited. And it can be really challenging for financially strapped districts and schools to be able to continue to fund initiatives beyond the time of the grant. And so I think, uh, I think my first example is probably a better example of how to build long-term partnerships. 
And I think, Erin, it speaks to the importance of doing community asset mapping too, knowing what those resources are so that you can tap into them. Absolutely. This county is fortunate also to have a community college. And so the district has been able to partner with that community college to offer things like um, swimming courses for students in multiple grades across all schools in the system. Just building on that idea of um, collaboration and community and um, how different agencies can work together. In your chapter, you described, you know, as you have done here, some non-traditional and innovative approaches. Can you share a little bit more about some of your favorite examples of the the role of the State Department of Education? As in our community of practice, we have folks who are working in State Departments of Education now for state regions. There are two examples that I think are pretty amazing that are happening in West Virginia. One is the Mathematics Master Teacher Project, which is called the M3T Project in West Virginia. And the second is called Reconnecting McDowell. So M3T is a really fascinating project because it started in a particular school in a particular school district. So an instructional coach in mathematics, Joanna Burt Kinderman, in Pocahontas County, which is a a very rural county in West Virginia. It actually is home to one of the country's national radio quiet zones. So there's no internet uh, usage in, in in a big piece of this county. She was engaged in some innovative math professional development in her district. And the purpose of it was the teachers from the ground up would identify specific problems in their classroom. And then they would work together to try to create potential solutions and then test them out. So it was a really organic process. And she wanted to expand this model to districts beyond her own, um, but didn't have the resources to do it because she was an instructional math coach in a single district. So she partnered with Dr. Matthew Campbell, who's who's a professor at West Virginia University, which is the state's flagship land-grant institution. And said, I'd really love to scale this up. And so she tapped into the resources that the university had to offer. So together they wrote a grant to the Benedum Foundation, which is a private foundation in the state, to get some seed money to expand their work. And then once they had a proven track record of that, then they partnered again and wrote a much larger grant to the National Science Foundation. So the, the effect is they now have 40 math fellows across the state of West Virginia that are all engaged in this work and engaged in a community of practice around this work. What's really amazing about this project beyond all of that is that the State Department is also an equal partner in the work. Instead of being a top-down initiator, the State Department serves as a connector in enabling better networking across all of these districts in a very rural state. So that's my first example. The second is, is reconnecting McDowell. McDowell County is one of the poorest counties in the country. Often when politicians want to talk about widespread rural poverty, they use McDowell as one of their examples. So it's the southernmost county in the state. It was once a thriving coal community, um, but has has been in an economic downward position for for decades now. So it has very high rates of poverty. Um, It's very geographically isolated. It has high uh, opioid overdose rates. And so all this creates some real strains on the school system. And one of those strains is around the recruitment and retention of teachers. Reconnecting McDowell is this pretty amazing collaboration 
between a whole host of entities, but one of the most powerful is the AFT. That's American storied, Federation of Teachers. Federation of Teachers, that's right. And so it has sort of storied origins. You know, there's a story about the first lady of West Virginia happen, happening to meet with um, Randy Weingarten and, and coming up with this idea that it wasn't enough to focus on improvement of the school, that it had to be a whole community approach to thinking about how to improve the lives of youth. It became this really regional hub. It has over 100 partners, nonprofit partners, corporations. One of the liaisons told me it's an amazing endeavor because you will have union and non-union entities together at the same table um, because the goal is so powerful for everyone. Uh, and so it's done a, a whole host of, of wonderful things at McDowell County, but one of the outcomes of that partnership is the um, opening of what they call the Renaissance Village, which is a response to the teacher shortage in the county. And um, the Renaissance Village has 16 apartments that are designed to attract teachers because um, McDowell County, like, like many economically depressed, geographically remote rural places, has difficulty um, in providing affordable, attractive housing to teachers. And so the Renaissance Village is just one really tangible achievement of this partnership um, in which the state is an important player in supporting all of this work. And so one of the things that I've learned through these examples is that the state can be a really powerful partner um, without having to be the entity that pushes down mandates or initiatives on local districts or on collaborations across districts and state. Erin, the book has a section that really focuses on next steps. And one of those is asking principals and state agencies to support school community partnerships. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, one of the things I wanted to do when I was thinking about this chapter was to ask whether it was community leaders or nonprofit leaders or school and district leaders to tell me what they wished state agencies would know about them in order to better support their work. I came up with a list of, of five ideas um, that were generated from these conversations. The first that came up with great frequency was that they want state leaders and state agencies to come to rural communities to visit with with community and school leaders there so that they can inform more targeted support strategies. Because a common theme that emerged through my conversations was that leaders feel like on the ground insight is the best way to inform approaches at the state level that support the really different and specific needs that different rural communities and schools have. The second is that they want state agencies to communicate available supports and resources to them. Um, so remember earlier, we talked about how rural leaders have a lot of different work on their plate mm -hmm. on any given day. And it's really hard to continually be informed about changing opportunities and resources available from states. One of the principles I talked to gave cooperative extension as a positive example. Whenever the local cooperative extension has opportunities or resources, they reach out to the schools. 
and see, here's what we have. Are you interested in partnering? And they're looking for something similar from states, communicating more regularly with them about opportunities for partnership that might exist. Another was perhaps not surprisingly about funding and not even necessarily more funding, but more targeted, specific, flexible, long-term funding. Um, not just to get more buy-in, but also to enable people on the ground to engage in the, in the messy and complicated work of figuring out what best, what best meets their needs or what solutions work best given their specific context. They also felt like long-term funding would provide a bit of a cushion to them. Some, uh, some leaders I talked to spoke about having corporate partnerships, for example, that expire and that having some long-term flexible resources from the state would provide them with a bit of a cushion as they try to make their projects sustainable. Another one was thinking about community needs outside the school. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about broadband in rural places. Also, people I talked to were thinking about issues like road infrastructure. And maybe at first glance, we don't think about that as being really important in supporting the work of rural schools. But in the research I've done, for example, on rural retention, road systems make a huge difference uh, in the ability to attract and retain teachers. So, so there was some real interest in having state leaders think about infrastructure and other needs outside the school building itself as important spaces for being supportive. And the last was about being an equal partner. And I feel like this is a theme that came up again and again in my conversations, that the state can be an incredibly powerful partner and that people on the ground who are implementing initiatives felt like that equal partnership enabled them to be really flexible in meeting their specific needs and goals. Erin, is there anything you want to add to the conversation? We've covered a lot here about building partnerships, about the different examples that you've given about formal and informal, how state agencies can work across their agencies, and also how state departments of education that we serve in our, our community practice, as well as the rural leaders, can think of ways of perhaps working together. Are there anything else you want to add as you move into your um, this chapter and you're doing a lot more research? I talked about communication, and that was one of the items that, that came up on sort of the wish list of, of local leaders that I talked to. It's also something that came up in my conversation with the M3T leaders uh, about the challenges of communicating across institutions, whether that's higher ed and K-12 or higher ed and K-12 in the state, and how often we're, we're talking about the same ideas but we might be using different language and that can create some real barriers to successful partnerships. And something they talked about was the ability to navigate um, those different languages that, that different types of institutions might use. And that example also, along with reconnecting McDowell, really made me think about the need for different organizations to recognize their own strengths and weaknesses and be comfortable relying on the strengths of other organizations to support one another. 
because certainly what's happening in a K-12, a K-12 school has really incredible strengths that a university does not, and a university has resources and strengths that a K-12 system does not. And the same can be said for a department of education. And so I think that being able to recognize those differences and tapping into one another's strengths seems like a critical issue in thinking about developing positive and sustainable partnerships. And it and it goes beyond, you know, just thinking about programming or addressing student needs. I've been doing some research around two different strands recently. One has been the teacher shortage and the other has been in thinking about how rural school leaders implement state policies around equity. And I think in both of those veins of research, the ability for leaders to have strong community networks and partnerships seems essential in helping tackle some of these challenges. Erin, what other research do you have coming up in the future? Hi, so um, Sarah, I have an article coming out soon that looks at how uh, principals across the state of West Virginia are responding to teacher recruitment and retention issues and how it affects their practice. And probably if you're a rural principal and you read it, you will say, yes, obviously this is what's happening. But we haven't been doing a lot of talking with uh, building leaders about what retention and recruitment challenges mean for them and how they um, navigate community networks and relationships uh, to try to resolve some of those vacancy issues. And the other is uh, an article coming out next year in the Rural Educator that um, with a colleague in South Carolina, Daniela Hall-Sutherland, that uh, really looks at equity issues around race in a South Carolina school system. Um, so we're so we're trying to tackle some of the myriad and multiple challenges that rural leaders are facing in their contemporary practice. I'm looking forward to reading both of those. They're very timely topics for sure. Yeah, and Erin, thank you so much. Just really spotlighting and and uh, the power of personal relationships and network building and the unique situations of the rurality and that and considerations that that brings to the whole, you know, education and community building pieces. Thank you for chatting with me. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. You can check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Sadorf so you never miss a new release. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.